Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. It's good to be with you all uh, tonight. and to be back in this space, if you were around last summer, we actually uh, worshipped here together for an entire summer. So that was uh, this, this is like going back to um, back to roots. But uh, I wanted to give greetings from Brookline and just say we love you guys. We're grateful for um, what God's doing in uh, City on the Hill, Brighton. We know that you long to actually be in Brighton and not in City on the Hill, Brighton in Newton. Um, but we're praying and, and trusting that God's going to help you guys to be able to make that move, get back over there. Um, and in the meantime, movie nights, that's awesome. It's great to be able to be there and to uh, get to know your neighbors there. So just to encourage you in that. Um, and then look forward, obviously, to being together. It won't just be uh, Brookline and Brighton. It'll also be Forest Hills uh, next Sunday, so uh, Sunday morning, and we'll have some time to hang out and eat. Uh, I did want to, before I dive into the passage, did want to address uh, briefly this week, unless you were living under a rock, you know that uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned this week, um, and the repercussions of that are, are pretty huge. Um, as I t- took in the, the, uh, the dumpster fire that is Twitter, I could see uh, anger, I could see uh, some people rejoicing, I could see a lot of mixed feelings in between. Um, and I wanted to just challenge us as Christians, we, we have the ability to do complex ethical thinking. Like we, we, uh, and, and that's not normal in our culture. Our culture like simplistic, sort of um, narrow-minded, if you will, thinking about things. We are called to think on a much deeper level, and we have God's Word to guide us in that. Because of that, um, we are capable of seeing the, the dignity and value of the image God, of God in the women who uh, have had abortions or considering abortions. Uh, there is a dignity and value to those women um, that is equal, on the other hand, that we can see the dignity and value of the image of God in the unborn as well. And our culture doesn't hold those two together. You're one or the other, one or the other, one or the other. And as Christians, there is no one or the other. We are both. Uh, we are called to... Uh, see that and to value um, that image of God in both types of people. In fact, Christianity, just welcome to the party, but uh, has the most robust human-like ethic on earth. From the preborn to the elderly to the disabled, we value life, period. Now, we don't always act on that well, but that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, another thing we have to talk about is how we act because of that. Um, but the ethic itself is there. But not only do we have the ability to understand or think about this, we also have been called by our Savior to love people radically uh, and sacrificially, and even to the point of loving our enemies, right? Loving people who might not like us because we refuse to fall firmly on one side or the other, um, because we try to hold this tension in the middle of, of loving mothers and understanding that uh, a mother who... Um, you know, I, I know this exact situation actually happened. A, a mother who uh, had two kids in the home already, she was in an abusive situation, had no family around her, had no church support, had no resources, and she found out she was pregnant. And she's going to bring a child into a home where the, her husband is abusive. 
Like, if you can't be sympathetic towards that and understand why she would consider abortion, then your ethic needs to grow. Your understanding, your compassion needs to grow. Uh, we have a Savior that, that, that calls us to love others radically. And so I, say, I would say this today. If you find yourself sort of drawn only to one side of that argument or the other, I would encourage you to take a step back from the rhetoric that's flying around our culture. Because if, if you look at it from Scripture, there is a complex ethic that frames it, but our culture comes at it from very narrow-minded and politically motivated uh, ethics. And so I want to encourage you to take a step back. If you're like me, I actually did have to get off Twitter this week. Uh, the rhetoric, disdain, and vitriol that was being spewed out um, was, was not good for my soul. I had to take a step back. So if I'm not saying don't care about the situation. You should care. Uh, but if you find yourself sort of on the news cycle, watching Twitter, keeping up with all this, and you find your heart's not in a good place with God, then take a step back. Ask yourself a very simple question. Is this helping me love God and love others well? Or is this just making me more angry? Because our news cycle feeds on anger um, and outrage. And it's perfectly okay to just stop and get off of that. And, um, a couple of things that, that helped me um, this week that I thought were uh, well-written that you might consider if you want to read about this a little bit. Um, there was a New York Times op-ed piece called I Prayed and Protested to End Roe v. Wade, or Roe, What Comes Next? Karen Swallow Pryor, who's a brilliant scholar, uh, very good writer, uh, wrote in the New York Times this week on that. Um, she goes back, actually traces the history of the pro-life movement and uh, when Roe v. Wade was approved. Um, and then also another book that's a free download this week, the Gospel Coalition just made a book called The Secular Creed. One of the chapters in there is called Women's Rights or Human Rights. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who is a PhD from Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, England, but actually lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, goes to a sister church called Hope Fellowship Church. She's a member there. Uh, she is a brilliant writer, and she actually argues how even the idea of women's rights are rooted in a biblical worldview, uh, and she helps uh, think through that. So you can see a free download for that on the Gospel Coalition's uh, website. So I just share that just to encourage you. This is not over. This is not. So if you're angry, you're just not going to be able to sustain that anger for the next year or two or 15. So try to best you can deal with that, get past that. And then let's approach this uh, like Christ would call us to, to love people well uh, during this time. All right. Our passage for today, it's already been read, um, but deals with really two extremes in the Christian life the, uh, around the idea of the role of faith and works. This has been debated for as long as Christianity has been around, uh, but there's really two extremes that, that we see and I've experienced. One, uh, one can be summed up in an experience I had years ago on an airplane. I got on an airplane from Detroit to Amsterdam. It was a red eye, sat down next to a guy and we talked religion for five hours. Um, now, I did not sit down next to him and say, hey, do you wanna be extremely awkward for the next five hours? We'll talk about religion. Um, what happened was I was going to a global conference for pastors and missionaries and uh, he found, uh, he asked, you know, where are you, where are you headed? Why are you going to Amsterdam? And so I talked about it and he's like, oh yeah. And we started talking. It turns out he was a Jehovah's Witness, a uh, very uh, active Jehovah's Witness. Now we spent a lot of time talking about who Jesus is. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe the same things about Jesus that, that City on the Hill Brighton does or Brookline does. It's not Orthodox Christianity. 
But that aside, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, we did get to the topic of works, like being saved by faith alone. You see in the Protestant Reformation, there's a core doctrine and you may have heard this. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, right? It's faith. There's, we, don't, we don't add to it. We don't contribute to it. We don't, uh, get, we don't earn God's approval. We receive faith uh, or by faith, we receive God's grace. Um, and he, he accepted that to a degree, the sense of the idea of, of faith, but his was, uh, he, he could not separate it from works. He believed that you had to do enough good works. You had to achieve enough. You had to follow certain rituals and rules, which is often a, a sign of Jehovah's Witnesses because <laughs> they have very clear rules and, and things that you have to follow and you have to do all of these things. And if you do that, then you might make it to heaven. And so he and I went around and around and it was an amiable uh, discussion, uh, but he could not get past. It was faith plus works equals salvation. On the other extreme uh, was a person that I, uh, well, I ran into a lot when I was pastoring in Kentucky. And in particular, this young woman I was talking to, she, uh, she was sharing that she had grown up in church, that she had been baptized in church, that she had uh, been to youth uh, camps and retreats and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I began to talk to her about what, what that meant for her now. What, and, she, and I asked her, where do you go to church? And she said, well, I don't go to church. I haven't gone in years. And I began to explore. And basically, she doesn't do anything Christians do. There was no prayer life. There's no reading the Bible. There's no spending time with other Christians. There's no connection with God. Basically, her life did not reflect the Christian faith at all. And I kind of gently, because we had a pretty good relationship at this point talking, and I was like beginning to gently push on the idea, are you sure that you're a Christian? <laughs> because, you know, um, it, it, I was kind of like, there's, there's not a lot of evidence here of your life. And she began to recite, well, I was say, I'm saved by faith. Not by what I do, because I, I, she'd heard that right, heard that rightly in her church. But she also had heard another doctrine called once saved, always saved. And the idea is that she had, because she had had faith at one point, she was saved and it didn't matter what she did now. Now, those are the two extremes that you deal with in the Christian life or that I have come across at least. Um, and in, in looking at this passage today, you can see that James is trying to address faith and works, but he often gets pitted against Paul. I don't know if anybody's heard this, but uh, Paul uh, addressed faith and works in books like Galatians. If you want to read a short letter, a fairly short letter that really gets at his idea. Um, he believed we're saved by faith alone, not by works. Now all of a sudden we read James and James says, aren't we justified by our works too? Um, and it seems like they're, they're, they're butting heads. But you have to understand what they're addressing. Paul was addressing the guy on the airplane that I was talking to who believed that he had to do good things in order for God to approve him. And that's the only way he could be saved. Paul says, no, we're saved by faith alone. James is addressing the woman over here and this says, well, I believe, but I don't have to do anything now, right? I'm saved by faith. And, and James is going, no, no, not, <laughs> that doesn't work. That's not really how it works either. Uh, so the passage we're looking at is, is uh, really connected back with James 1.22, which is the central verse for the whole uh, book. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But this passage, James 2.14 through 26, could be considered the core argument of the book, the ethical sort of real life expression of what your faith looks like. And why do we care about it? Why should we care about it at all? So James is dealing with people uh, like the woman I, I mentioned in Kentucky. 
And he comes out with, or the, the, the big idea that he's getting across to us today is this. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Now, don't think, wow, that's very witty, Bland. That is not mine. Um, someone else came, I've heard that for many, many years. It's a good summary statement, right, of what James is arguing here. He's saying, basically, if you have saving faith, that saving faith will never, will not cease to present itself in the way that you live and the way that you, uh, your life demonstrates it. Uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to see him outline three different types of faith to, to help us to understand this. The first is a dead faith. Then there's a demonic faith and then a demonstrative faith. So let's talk about these, a dead faith. James uh, says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That is what you call a rhetorical question. Your mom may have asked you rhetorical questions. Mine did. Are you going to clean your room up before, like I asked you, before you go out and play with your friends? What's the answer to that? Yes, I will, mom, right? The answer is implied in the question. Uh, Yes, I will clean my room. Even though I had my foot out the door to go play with my friends, I was just remembering that you wanted me to clean my room, right? So when when James is saying, uh, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, what good is it? He's he's saying it's not. It's not, it can't save him. Uh, Look at verse 15. He begins some examples here. He goes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and basically you choose to not engage them, and you say, go, be well, um, he's saying that is not real faith. Now, this word, this idea of being poorly clothed and lacking in daily food is not poorly clothed as in he doesn't have very fashion. You know, he's kind of dressed circa 2010, you know, not super cool, or she's, you know, kind of more, you know, uh, back in the day, just not very fashionable. That's not poorly dressed. We might think someone is poorly dressed like that. This poorly dressed is they barely got clothes on. They are almost naked, right? They are, they are, what they have on is barely on and it's not good at all. And it's not even basic clothing, we would say. And then as far as food, this isn't like, oh, they can't eat at Barcelona or, you know, wherever they, or Seasons 52, they, 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 they have no food. There's no food. It's not, not good food. It's no food. And so he says, when you look at them, when we look at them and say, go in peace, be warm, be filled. Go in peace is a common Jewish phrase. Jesus actually used that as a greeting. It's a, it was a greeting and kind of a farewell. Um, but the, the way that it's translated, uh, be warm, be, fi- be filled, can actually be translated in the middle voice. And what I, what, what the, let me translate it for you. Warm yourself feed yourself. Go in peace. You know what you should do, dude? Like, bro, you need some clothes. You should go get some clothes. And, and you need some food. I can see you are starving. You, sh- you should get yourself some food. That's what he's saying. And, he's, and he's, James is putting that on us, saying if we know someone, and this is why he says brother or sister, not physical brother or sister, but within the family of God. I would argue not just in our local church family, but larger church family, we know someone who is without food, without adequate clothing, uh, then, and we look at them and go, dude, be well. God bless you. Praying for you, right? <laughs> we say that. He's like, your faith is worthless. Don't, don't, don't pray for them. God's already answered their prayer request for their food. It's in your pantry, 
They're in your pocket, right? God's already answered the, the prayer request for clothing. It's in your, your closet. So don't, don't, he's saying your faith is worthless if you're, you can close your heart to a brother or sister in Christ like that. James is saying this kind of faith is dead. It's a professing faith without being a practicing faith. And let me tell you something. This is, this is not only not only dead for a person, but when you observe this as an outside person, you see this in someone else, it's damaging. Some of you grew up in a home where you saw maybe your parents or extended family or someone who, who professed Jesus, but their life just didn't reflect it. Not in any meaningful way. Maybe they went to church regularly, but, but kind of you saw it and you saw them and basically everything they did, they did for themselves. If they served in church, it was for their own glory or so they could make their own conscience feel good. If they were, uh, did certain things or gave money, it was always for, the, for themselves. And this is damaging. I would argue one of the greatest obstacles to, uh, to, to people I know, non-Christians, who I've talked to, uh, to coming to believe in Jesus is they've met Christians who profess Christ but have looked like nothing like him right? Who, who don't reflect his kindness, not perfection. Listen, I've always said this. I'll say it till the day I die. If I run across a Christian who I think is perfect, I feel like they're probably hiding something like maybe a body, you know, like it's creepy, isn't it? It's, it's a little creepy. So you're look, they're looking for authenticity and they've got the nose for it. They say, you know what? They, their, their life generally kind of reflects their faith. Like they, they do seem kind of loving. They do seem kind of sacrificial, And James is saying, without that, our faith is dead. It's like giving someone a dead plant. It's worthless, right? Can you imagine you you have a friend, they knock on the door, you open the door and they're like, hey, here, I got a plant for you. You're like, it's dead. Like, yeah, but I wanted to get you a plant. Like, it's not really a plant. It kind of doesn't do the things plants do. It's not alive. It's not green. It's not growing. It's not, it doesn't make oxygen. It's dead. A dead. Your faith without works is like a dead plant. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. We, we live in a culture though, and I would just say this before we move on to demonic faith. We live in a culture that um, values comfort over sacrifice. And we have to be careful not to, to take the gospel message of trusting and resting in what Christ has done for us and using that as an excuse for spiritual apathy and laziness, right? We should, we should be honest about our own lives. Does, are there things that I do? Is my life reflective of, of the faith I profess? That's what James is, making, is calling us to evaluate. Not perfection, but is your life marked by works that reflect your faith? So let's talk about demonic faith. So he moves on. He goes, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, hey, you know what, James? You've got your way. <laughs> You're doing that faith thing. I've got works. or you, uh, You've got works. I've got faith over here. So let's, let's agree to disagree, right? Let's all get along. You've got your way of getting to God. I've got my way. Um, <laughs> but James is, is basically saying, no, that's, that's not two sides of the Christian church. This is um, unhealthy faith, a dangerous way of talking about faith and works. He, uh, continuing verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's addressing what we could call faithless works and workless faith. And those are the two dangers in the Christian life. Faithless works obscure faith by their action. They have a tendency to, to, to be oriented around earning your salvation 
or at least making yourself feel better about your salvation, right? Like, like, yeah, God saved me, but I've done all these things, so now I'm really saved. And if you grew up in a home where your parents, your, your parents' approval was withheld from you until you did got those straight A's in school or you did really well at sports or whatever it might be, you might very well have a tendency to fall into this, that you kind of really struggle with the idea that God just loves you for you. God loves you because it's his will to love you. You're like, yeah, but I probably need to do some good things so that I know that he really loves me. That's faithless works. You're trying to put God in your debt. And this is, this is how Christianity, and this is what Galatians, by the way, the book of Galatians is all about. It, Christianity can slip very easily over into a works-based righteousness, a works-based holiness. Um, and, and this is really just religion. You see, religion, depending on your religion, you may have to pay your karmic debt. You may have to go visit Mecca, or um, even in some Christian circles, you may have to speak in tongues to actually uh, to prove that you are a Christian. Works of people believe God owes them to love them because of their great devotion. Look, God, what I've done. If, if I asked you the question tonight, why should God allow you into heaven? And your mind goes to anything but Jesus and only Jesus. Then you probably have some works that have crept into your life. If you felt like you were put on the spot and you'd kind of go, well, you know, I went to church that Sunday afternoon, late June. It was really hot. I could have stayed home, but I went to church, right? If you default to that, that's a sign that you're leaning into works. The gospel is not about works. It's about grace. One theologian said it this way, every religion says that the savior by which we can be saved is the person we see in the mirror every morning. True Christianity says the opposite. So workless, um, sorry, faithless works are people who um, don't see the gospel, don't experience the gospel, but try to work their way to the gospel or to God. Um, but faithless works, or excuse me, workless faith are, are people who can sound real spiritual. And this is, I think, a real danger for us, um, for, for all of us sitting on the Hill churches, because one of our core values, our first core value is what? Gospel, right? Come on, you, I know you all know it. Uh, gospel. Um, gospel. And, and, and that's, that reminds us, right? We're all saved by the finished work of Christ, right? When on the cross, he says, it is finished, right? And we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and there's nothing to add to it. There's no treadmill. There. We're just loved and fully accepted and fully approved. And that can turn into an excuse not to act, not to, to, uh, to, to do things. People say, uh, oh, you know, Isaiah says all our, our works are, are like filthy rags to God, right? So we should just trust in Jesus and, and not worry about our works. Jesus is interceding for me. So why do I need to pray? God is sovereign, right? God's going to get done what God's going to get done. Why do I need to do anything? Do I mean like kind of, yeah, I'm probably supposed to, but really do something. We don't have to serve because, oh, that's legalism. I don't want to read my Bible every day. I don't want to turn into a Pharisee or something, right? Like we, we, we can shy away from any sort of discipline or pursuit of holiness or structure or like living like Jesus sacrificially because we think, oh, well, I don't want to trust in my works. Yes, Jesus did all the works that were needed for our salvation, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we do today. 
He didn't purchase you so you can go off and live your life. He purchased you, adopted you into his family. Listen, if, if, if you adopt a, a, a small child into your family and there, there's no physical, psychological issues, but that child stops maturing at three years old, like they stop doing things any more advanced, like you would think something is seriously wrong. God has adopted us into his family to grow, to mature, to be more like Jesus. And that involves what we do day in and day out. He says, verse 19 reminds us, this is so scary to think about, but he says you can have correct theological beliefs. You can have correct theological beliefs about Jesus and not be a Christian. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you believe God is, is one. That's a, uh, a reference to the Shema, the Old Testament uh, um, uh, Jewish uh, phrase. They, sa- they said every day, behold the Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? This was recited every day. It's like the core of, of theology, that God is one. Um, and yet he's saying the demons can say that. God is one. The demons believe that Jesus is the son of God. Look back in the gospels. What happens when demons show up and start talking around Jesus? What do they say? This guy's the son of God, right? We know who you are, Jesus, the son of God, right? He had to shut him up on multiple occasions because what they were saying was true, but it was not the time for him to be revealed. So that, by the way, that's why he kept telling them to shut up because it wasn't time for him to be revealed in his glory. They were trying to, they were trying to, to show his hand show his, and, and force him into uh, accepting glory on earth. But demons have a kind of faith. They check off a bunch of major doctrines, who God is, who Jesus is, what he did on the cross. Anybody here think demons are saved? Anybody think demons are going to heaven? Anybody think that demons are redeemed and belong to the family of God? Absolutely not. So what is the difference between you and I when we believe the right things, but we don't live it out? It's a demonic faith. When our lives are not reflective of the faith that we confess. So James is saying this is dangerous and that we're capable of doing this. So we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. And that's where he gets uh, in this last discussion of faith to demonstrative faith in verses 20 through 26. He says, uh, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Another rhetorical question, right? He's, He's not waiting for us to go, no, I don't. It's like, do you want to know? Do you want to be shown? I'm going to show you whether you say yes or no. It's a rhetorical question. Um, And he changes terms here. He doesn't say dead. He says useless. Useless. And whenever I hear this word, I think, um, so at one point in college, I was reading, uh, I spent an entire summer reading James. I like read it. I read it some days just all the way straight through. uh, But the entire summer, I probably read it through 25 times over a summer. So I've gotten to really love James and actually uh, memorized the first couple of chapters. Um, unfortunately, not in the English Standard Version, in another version. So I get really mixed up sometimes when I'm reading to you guys because I'm reverting back to the New American Standard. But, um, but I, I came to really love this text. And this phrase, being, faith being useless, always reminded me of my roommate in college. who uh, I, I went to college in North Carolina, small college, and um, my friend... Uh, Shane was from Tarboro, North Carolina. 
some of you from North Carolina might even know where that is, but it's like you got, drive out into a rural area and then you go past that. It's like way out in the middle of nowhere. And he had like a really thick accent. I love, I love him to this day. He's a, he's a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida. But um, he used to say something that I never heard in my life. He goes, uh, about something's useless. He goes, that's useless as a screen door on a submarine, right? <laughs> and it just stuck with me over the years. It, can you put a screen door on a submarine? Sure. There's no, there's no law of physics that says you can't put a screen door on a submarine. But the moment you do that, you defeat the purpose of a submarine, don't you? And when we have no works to, 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 to match our faith, it's like putting screen door on our faith. Our faith, the purpose of our faith is for us to be like Jesus, right? To be a part of God's family. So for us to say, oh, I have faith, but there's nothing I do about it. I don't live this out. I'm not following Jesus. It's like a screen door on a submarine. So saving faith is meant to produce works. And when it doesn't, our faith is useless. And he uses two examples here to help us see this. First is uh, Abraham. And he shows how works flow from faith here. Look at verse 21 and following. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is this exact phrase in this ver- these verses is why Martin Luther, the pro- father of the Protestant Reformation, wandered throughout the book of James. He called it a strawy epistle, like straw, right? It's kind of n- not a lot there. Um, and the reason he hated it is because he had come out of uh, a deep works-based Catholicism. Like literally, he used to do three hours a day of confession. He would wear his priests out because he wanted to make sure that he confessed every sin, every thought, every action, every action he thought about, like, you know, everything in his life. So every day. And, and he finally figured out we're saved by faith alone, reading the book of Romans. God changed his life. So he doesn't like this idea. That, no, no, it's all about faith, right? Um, but but he, he's missing what James, what James actually says here. You see, verse 21 and verse 23 have to go together. Because if you read verse 21, it sure sounds like Abraham was justified by his works alone. But verse 23 goes together with it. You see, verse um, 21 is a reference uh, to, the book, to uh, Genesis 22 to when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, right? His son, Isaac. But verse 23 is a quote from Genesis 15. Seven chapters earlier and 30 years earlier in Abraham's life. So what does that mean? Look at verse 23. Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So In verse 23, what we find is in Genesis 15, Abraham was called righteous. He belonged to God. He was a friend of God. Genesis 22, when he actually was willing to sacrifice his son, that was an expression of that faith. He was already belonged to God. He was in God's family. And guess what? When you trust God and God is your friend, what do you do? You trust God, (laughs) right? And so his faith, his faith, came forth in his actions and became validated or evidenced or demonstrated years later. 
It did not make him a Christian. That's so important to understand. Verse 23, or Genesis 22 did not make Abraham a believer. Genesis 15 is when Abraham became a follower of God. So it's not by faith. our, Our actions are a demonstration of our faith. And he was called a friend of God. Now, I want to pause on that because that's not a phrase real common in Scripture. But I want you to stop and let our little brains think about that for a moment. The God who made every atom in the entire universe, who understands us and sees you at this moment on a cellular level, whose glory and beauty would incinerate us if he were to show up in this room right now, says, Abraham's my friend. This is my friend, my buddy, Abraham. (laughs) I'm like, that's crazy that any human being, a finite, limited little creature, we're like a blip on a radar screen floating around on a piece of dust in an infinite space. And God's like, this is my friend. (laughs) You want to talk about validation, right? And so uh, God says, Abraham's my friend. And and, and what do you do? You trust your friends. God, uh, Abraham, acted as a friend of God. And so God called him a friend. John, in John 15, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Not do what I command you and I'll call you friends. No, he's saying, if you're my friends, if you really are, you're gonna do what I commanded you. It's the overflow of it. It's like, it's like uh, any of your friends, right? Someone, if you're a real friend to someone and they ask you to do something, what do you mean? Like, nah. Are you really a friend? No. But if you are a friend, you will do what they ask. That's the demonstration. So Jesus said that. It's a demonstrative faith. I'll give you a, a physical example. I know uh, Aaron was a student pastor for many years, so he loves children's sermons and lots of props. So uh, this, this chair, some of you might recognize this if you were part of City on a Hill Brooklyn. Actually, I know you guys had some of these in Brighton too, didn't you? So in 2010, I bought... I, literally me, went to Costco and bought 200 of these chairs for us to put into the gym at Driscoll Elementary School. Um, I researched it, found the best chair I could, I could find. Um, it's, it's a powder-coated chair, had nice fabric. We didn't want a hard chair because the room had nothing to absorb sound. I was like, we need some fabric on these chairs. People are going to be sitting in them. There's no air conditioning in the room. Need a little comfort. Um, and so I bought these chairs. The weight limit on these chairs is 300 pounds. I remember the day we had a six foot eight, 320 pound man come. He was an NFL football player and he sat down in the chair and I prayed it wouldn't break. Um, (laughs) But I know so much about these chairs. We put them out for eight years. That's over 400 Sundays of handling the same chairs. And we had night services for a while. So they went out for that too. Um, But there's a big difference between understanding this chair, right? And all, all the physics and all that's involved in it and then actually sitting in it, right? Can you imagine a person who knows everything about the chair and you're like, uh, do you think that chair will hold you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Why don't you sit in it? I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe not. I'm not sure about that. No, you should sit in the chair. Well, you know, I think I'm okay over here. No, the chair is for your comfort. It's for your good. This is what you're made for to sit in the chair, you believe in the chair? I believe in the chair. You believe the chair will hold you? Absolutely. Then sit in the chair. Mm, nah. That's what faith without works is like. We're saying we believe in a God who saved us, redeemed us, given us new life, brought us into his family, but we're not going to live it out. We're not going to make decisions tomorrow about it. 
Listen, James is calling us that our faith is an expression of our, 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 our faith. Our, our works are expression of our faith. And I, we haven't really talked about it, but I want to hit just quickly. What are the, um, what does he mean by works, right? Because if you, you're like me, you're like, what, did, what kind of works is he talking about? You can sum this up in Jesus' greatest commandment. Anything that, help, that is loving God more fully or loving others like Jesus is an expression of a faith, right? It's an expression of your faith in God. Um, and those are works that you and I do. And sometimes God, the, listen, God's going to call you today, maybe even before you get home tonight, to do some works, some good works, to love others, to, love, uh, to serve others, to love God, to honor God. Um, and this week, he will call you. I promise you, tomorrow, you will get up and you will run into a coworker. You will get on Zoom if you work from home and you'll have a coworker there or somebody and you'll have an opportunity to love them. Like Jesus, that's works. That's the expression of who you are in Christ. But occasionally, God will call you to make a big step of faith, a big work, if you will. Um, for me, it, it, it's happened maybe four or five times in my life, but the big one was, uh, one of the big ones was 2006 when I was pastoring in Kentucky and I, had a, uh, I was teaching a, as an adjunct professor at a small growing college there and um, had an opportunity. They were adding a new professor because their school was growing so quickly and the dean wanted me to apply for that. Um, and I think there was a reason <laughs> that he wanted me to apply. Um, but then also I had a couple of other churches, larger churches that were interested in talking to me. But God gave me this nagging sense that I was supposed to go move somewhere and plant a church. Now, I tried to ignore that for a while. <laughs> um, but, but slowly and surely, uh, God showed me that I was supposed to move to Boston. Now, I didn't make that decision on my own. I asked a lot of other people. I got a lot of input from friends, family, people who's known me for years, professors, other people like helping me to think through that. So when, when it comes to like a big work that you're gonna do because of your faith, God's given you his church to help you to make that decision, to help you discern that, to help you to walk wisely. And that's a gift, right? It's a good thing. Um, and so I would just encourage you, do the small things like tomorrow, love your nasty coworker, right? Who's mean, jerk, takes credit for your work. Love them anyway, because that's a work that expresses who you are in Christ. But also keep your eye out for those big things, those big works that Jesus may call you to. And don't hold that to yourself. Share it with others. So he also, he, he describes Abraham, and then he also demonstrates in, a, in one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Rahab, the prostitute. In verse 25, he says, in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, I don't have a chance to tell the whole story, but Rahab was a prostitute. Uh, she was very different than Abraham, right? She was a prostitute in a pagan nation, she, she was not a, 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 a dude, had, had no real power. But in this context, when the Israelites, two, two spies came into Jericho uh, to, to, find, to spy out the land, she had already heard from about God. God had opened her heart to believe the, that God is good, God is kind, God is compassionate for anyone who will call upon him. And she chose to, to put herself, her entire family at risk by hiding those two messengers from the people in the town that wanted to kill him. And so she took a step of faith. Her faith was demonstrated in her works. And now the crazy thing is she's all over the Bible, including in Jesus's genealogy, right? Um, what a great story of redeeming God, taking our works, um, uh, uh, redeeming us and using our works for his glory. 
And I think the, probably the best passage in the Bible to help us to understand the balance, because if I go back to the beginning of the sermons, the, the, the person who believes it's all about works and then the person who believes it's all about faith. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It should be on the screen, but listen to this. You'll hear works. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's the, we're saved by faith alone, right? That's the faith alone. You don't contribute to it. You don't add to it. You don't earn it. But then listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see the impact. It's not, it's not that, uh, that, that we're saved by works, but works are the expression of our being saved. So I put it, this should be on the screen, but Christ has done all the works necessary for you to be saved. Now he has works for you to do because you are saved. That's the relationship of faith and works. Don't ever confuse that. You do works out of who you are in Christ, not to earn who you are in Christ. Amen, because I, I'm not very good at works. I'll just be honest. I'm not very good. I have a rebellious spirit in me. I'm not a very good legalist. Um, so praise God for that. As we close, I wanted to um, just share a, a couple of things you might reflect on. I think that there's a very real temptation for Christians to do just enough good works to feel comfortable, just enough good works to assuage our conscience, just enough good works that we don't feel nagged that we should do more, right? Oh, you know, I go to church. I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I give some money. I'm in a community group. I, I go help out occasionally, right? And you've been doing that for four years, and that's your whole Christian life. That's all the expression of your Christian life there is. You're, you're on your own, apart from the activities of the church, you're not actually growing. You're not, you're not that plant that's producing oxygen and growing. You're, you're just, you're kind of locked in like the three-year-old who never, over, never develops, right? You're just locked into some activities. And you've allowed that to assuage your conscience instead of understanding Christ has works for you to do, right? This text, Ephesians 2.10, says that God has prepared works for you to do. So I think one of the most exciting things you can do tonight before you go to bed is ask God the question, what works do you have for me this week? What works do you have for me to do this week, this month, this summer, right? Start to ask God that question. All of a sudden, you're, you're connecting with what God has already ordained. God has already prepared beforehand, right? That's kind of crazy to think about, that he's already prepared beforehand works for you to do. And now you're getting in touch with that.